Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on from bench to bedside and beyond, infusing patient perspectives across all of Pfizer, from the 2022 Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit. For more information about the Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. It is truly an honor to be here. Um, a lot of things, it's an honor to be anywhere because we were isolating and Zooming for so long. But one of the things that I was looking forward to about this conference was seeing people. But I'm a longtime patient advocate, and sitting home and isolating and Zooming, it kind of felt like nothing was happening. Um, and we were missing opportunities while we were watching all this stuff go on about COVID. And one of the things I got out of yesterday is how much progress we made by we were, we were all sitting home in front of screens. So I wanted to thank you all for all that you continue to do and the passion that you bring to this, because it's so important. So with that, um, and I feel like I got an introduction in that remarkable video, but I have been doing this for 26 years. I was diagnosed with breast cancer 26 years ago, and I founded one of the early breast cancer organizations. So I've been pushing this rock up a hill for a very long time, and I wouldn't say we've gotten to the top, but we've gained a lot of momentum. So I just wanted to also say that. So while we were Zooming, Emma started a new job. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, like, and talk a little bit about the role and the inspiration behind global patient advocacy at Pfizer. Sure. Thank you, Cindy. And thank you to patients as partners. And I'm quite impressed with that video. Where did you get those images? Oh, my goodness. Be careful what you have online. I mean, some of those images actually were, were from the launch of the Safe Use of Medicine speaking book in Uganda. So I'm really impressed with your expertise in digging up dirt, but, uh, <laughs> but really thrilled to be here. What an incredible conference. It's my first time as, as Patients as Partners, and I'm already inspired, humbled, and so grateful to be here with everyone. So a little bit about who, what, who I am and what I do at Pfizer. So at Pfizer, I'm currently the um, Vice President for our Global Patient Advocacy Team, and what my team does is really work really hard to embed the patient perspective across everything we do at Pfizer. And with that, you know, I'm really happy that at Pfizer, when our new CEO came in, Albert Brula, a couple years ago, we, he created, uh, not a couple years ago, I think it's been a little longer than that, we had a purpose blueprint, which for the first time, and we're already doing this, but for the first time, we had patient centricity in our purpose blueprint. So when you think about our purpose at Pfizer, the reason we exist as a company is to bring breakthrough medicines and vaccines that change patients' lives. So what we do is for patients, we need to make sure that we do it with patients. And that what, that's what my team strives to do. So how do we do it? We, we really wanna create honest, collaborative, and sustainable partnerships with patient advocacy groups, patients, caregivers, and when, with that, we listen, bring insights back into Pfizer that help inform how the way we do our business and the way we structure patient advocacy at Pfizer. 
In terms of my inspiration, what really inspired me to do this work, I think I have to go back to my childhood. I was born in Uganda, and, and we fled Uganda during the Idi Amin era, and we resettled in Cote d'Ivoire, which is Western Africa. There, my mother, who is a midwife, volunteered at a rural public health community center. And I think at a young age, I became acutely aware of the inequities that when it came to access to medicines and access to health. So, and I was equally intrigued as a young child is that if you have a headache and you take an Advil, your headache disappears, how's that? So that led me to pursue a degree in um, pharmacy and when I graduated and got my doctoral pharmacy degree, I started my career in the community and hospital settings. And there again, I was amazed at the low adherence rates to medicines, even in patients who have serious diagnosis. But then it really came to no surprise when you think about it, in the US and actually in a lot of jurisdictions around the world, we're lucky if we have five to 10 minutes with our physicians. So in those five to 10 minutes, can a physician really talk to a patient about their diagnosis, about their benefit risk profile of their medicines in a manner that they can understand and leads to patient activation? Of course, a physician can talk about those things easily, but they, are they talking to them in a manner that leads to patient activation? And this is where my passion for health literacy was born. And over my 23 years at Pfizer, I've had different roles with increasing responsibility, but I think the common thread for me has been trying to really improve that HCP patient dialogue. How can we do that? And then, um, so you saw the Safe Use of Medicine speaking book that, I, that we launched in, in, in Uganda. That's one of the things we did. And then I'm also really proud, a hashtag Pfizer proud moment, that I co-founded and co-led the Health Literacy Community of Practice at Pfizer. So those are some of the things that really inspire me to do this work, because I believe health literacy is one of the tools that will help close the gap when it comes to health inequities. Thank you. You inspired me just listening to you introduction. It sounds like a perfect role for you. <laughs> Pfizer produced the COVID vaccine in record speeds, and we all know that, and we all benefited from it. How did Pfizer ensure the involvement of diverse patients throughout the COVID-19 clinical trial process? It couldn't have been easy. No, couldn't have been easy, but actually um, yesterday, I'm listening to a lot of my peers and a lot of the work they're doing around increasing um, diversity in clinical trials is kind of what we're doing as well. So I was really inspired to hear that you really, because it's gonna take a village. It's not one company that can solve this. So what we really did, um, it, was, it was really important and we really needed to make sure that our COVID-19 vaccine trials were represented the populations that were disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And that means in, in the US, it was the African-American com patient communities as well as the Latino patient communities. So we had to make sure that we, we, we enrolled um, patients in those two communities. So what we did is um, similar to what a lot of my peers have mentioned over yesterday is that we partnered with the National Hispanic Medical Association as well as the National Association of Black Nurses. And we worked with them particularly to help raise, um, co-create education materials with them around um, COVID-19 that were culturally appropriate. 
But one thing we also needed to do is really meet the communities where they are. And where we could, we moved those clinical trial sites to the communities to help improve some of the barriers around access. And I'm sure you're all aware that not only did we, were we in a pandemic, but we are also in what the World Health Organization um, labeled as an infodemic. So we had a lot of misinformation about vaccine, the vaccine, who knew? I mean, we kind of knew, but really to the, the things we were hearing were kind of crazy. And then also about clinical trials. But you know, that gave me pause to really think in these populations, the African-American community, really, it's not a surprise that there were he there's hesitancy to participate in clinical trials if you look at the history of this country and the systemic racism in this country. So it's no surprise. So what we really needed to do was meet who would understand who are the trusted sources of, of information for these communities and also partner with them. So not only did you partner with med the, the usual medical associations, not only do you partner with the usual patient advocacy um, communities, you also need to partner with community members, community stakeholders, trusted community members in these communities. So that's what we did. We co-created um, resources around participation in clinical trials, listening to what their fears were about the vaccine, and a a addressing those in culturally appropriate um, materials. And in terms of, I'm really pleased to say that we had success, really good success with the COVID-19 vaccine trial, in that overall we achieved 42% diverse representation in a clinical trial, and in the US, 30%. So African-Americans participated in the trial at the same rate as the US Census. Um, the Latino community participated. Actually, the Latin, thank you, the Latino community exceeded US Census level, and men and women participated at the same level. So really, there are lessons learned from this. And one thing we really look back and say, really, it takes a special person to participate. It's selfless to participate in a clinical trial. So, and it's not gonna take one company to really solve this. So we're continuously striving to improve because we know that it's the right thing to do for science. It's the right thing to do for public health. But most importantly, it's the right thing to do for patients. It's just remarkable. I mean, under under the circumstances to address fear and trust, it's um, it's just pat yourself on the pat yourselves on the back. Um, but even more important, how are you going to take those actions? Like maybe talk about some specific actions to ensure diverse patient participation in the future and in other therapeutic areas, because yeah. it's still a challenge. Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge, and there were a lot of there are a lot of lessons learned. So one thing we, we, we know now is you have to meet the communities where they are. Listen to really understand what are the barriers that are preventing them for, from participating in clinical trials. Some of them, it might be financial. Some of them, it just might be access. Some of them might just be the logistics associated with, with inclusion criteria in a protocol. So really, to me, the key message is you need to listen to patients. You need to listen to their caregivers. You need to partner with patient advocacy groups and really listen and co-create solutions that 
will help us really on this journey of making sure that we have equitable access to clinical trials. Because at the end of the day, if, if, uh, if African-Americans or Latino populations or disregarded populations are not part of the clinical trial, then they're not gonna be part of the solutions. So I think it's also us raising awareness around why it's so important that we really diversify our clinical trials. Because it's the right thing to do, like I said, for science, for public health, but really for patients. Because at the end of the day, what we're striving to do is improve health outcomes for all. Not just some, but for all. Right, right, it's always been important, but I think COVID, if it demonstrated anything, was that it's more than important. Um, you shared a bit about Pfizer's approach to patient advocacy and engagement. Can you share some specific examples of it? Sure. I think what I'll start, um, I'll talk a little bit about my group, how we're organized, and I'll, I'll share a few examples. So as I mentioned, that I, I am the global patient advocacy lead for Pfizer, and I have a group of about 30-plus colleagues in different geographies around the world. So what we do is I have a regional lead in Africa, Middle East, I have a regional lead in Latin America, a regional lead for Europe, a, lead, a regional lead for Asia Pacific, and then I have uh, leads in, um, in the US and Canada as well. So with that, we are, we are at the corporate level. We are pan-therapeutic, um, but we, we, have, we have representation across the globe. What we also have at Pfizer are business units, where we have the oncology business unit, for example, the vaccine business unit, um, rare diseases, et cetera. So we also have colleagues within those business units that do patient engagement work. So um, what we've created at Pfizer that my team leads is called the Patient Advocacy Community of Practice, where we have all these different colleagues who are doing patient-facing work come together to be part of this community where we share best practices and make sure they're being leveraged for bigger impact. And so with that, um, I'll give you an example, and maybe I'll start with um, a rare disease example, where we have um, for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or, or DMD. As you can imagine, um, a diagnosis of DMD can leave a family feeling isolated, devastated, and desperate for a cure. With the incidence of DMD being one in 3,500 live male births, Clinical trials offer a glimmer of hope for a cure. But then, you know, we want to make sure, like any DMD clinical trial, there's still challenges even with that. So we want to make sure that we have equitable access to the clinical trial. We want to make sure that we raise awareness to the clinical trial and also, also work around the enrollment because, believe it or not, there's still difficulties and challenges with, 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 with enrolling such um, this clinical trial. So when we looked at the... Pfizer um, clinical trial for DMD, obviously there's limited space in the, in the clinical trial and it's run by independent investigators. But one thing we sought to do is that we wanted to make sure that every single family that's affected by DMD was aware of our clinical trial. So we partnered with patient advocate, advocacy groups to really help us with this. And I'm pleased to say that we reached out to 150,000 families across the US and they were aware of our clinical trial. We took, we took it a step further and really listened to what they were saying. They told that, you know, the resources you have are really not inspiring or relatable to patients. We're like, oh, okay. So we listened and co-created more inspiring materials and resources for patients. We also created an advisory board where caregivers and patients 
we took those insights and they helped informed, inform every single step of our, of our trial. So that's one example. And then I wanted to give you another example with our oncology group. And obviously that's a different population, patient population much bigger. And one thing I have to say is that our oncology business unit, like a, a lot of oncology, has a long legacy um, in patient advocacy, a really long legacy. But like anybody else, like all of us at Pfizer, the work is never done. So they were really striving to improve, even do better than what they're doing right now. So in 2019, they actually created a patient centricity ecosystem. And that ecosystem consists of 45 um, patient advocates that, that are part of, um, I think, four different national organizations across the cancer landscape. So it's now, again, elevating it away from the different tumor types to can we have this pan-therapeutic group of advocates. And we really sought to consult with them and gain insights in three areas, health equity, health literacy, and clinical trial diversity in, in, in the oncology space. And I'm really pleased to report that since 2019, we have had some really good outputs um, uh, from, from that ecosystem where we, we for example, we, we co-created um, um, plain language summaries for our clinical data. We co-created websites and resources um, for uh, recruiting more diverse um, populations in our clinical trials to make sure that our resources were culturally appropriate, to name a few. So I always chuckle to myself and say, Imagine if you ask. Imagine if you listen. Like Cindy, how can I say that I'm going to invite you to my house and make you your favorite meal and I don't ask you what you like? <laughs> you know? So imagine that. Just a simple thing. Ask and listen. So, so the important thing I think I take out of that, and I said I'd go back a long time, and working with some of your Pfizer colleagues on some of the aromatase inhibitor trials, that was oh a long goodness. time ago. Long, long time right. ago. And a lot of times what we'd have is our pharma partners ask, but we didn't always feel like they were listening. listening. Exactly. And so that's where your example of inviting me to dinner and not asking what my favorite meal is. Exactly. I mean, that really resonates with yeah. patient advocates, and it really demonstrates how far we've come. Yeah, right. and you know, the thing is, I really credit our CEO, Albert Bula. I think, you know, you're part of a corporation, and you know, we all have corporate speak, but once he included patient centricity as part of our purpose blueprint, everyone in the organization then had to make sure that we really, and he was, he was bold and challenged us, how can we be in this business? How can we ensure the safe and appropriate use of our medicines if we're not partnering with patients, if we're not embedding the patient perspective across everything we do across the organization? Right, right. I mean, it, it makes so much sense, and it makes you wonder what people were thinking before. <laughs> I mean, it was really an us thing. And um, you shared in our prep for this talk that health literacy has been so important a part of your work, and you've mentioned it several times here. Um, why do you think health, I think health literacy is really important. Like having supported, I don't know, probably tens of thousands of patients through hotlines and materials over the years, um, health literacy is the big one. It really is. But why do you think it's so important? Well, I really think, like I said, I really think health literacy is one of those tools that will really close the gap on health inequities. But when I bring it back to the Pfizer perspective, why is it really important 
like I said, we're in the business of making breakthrough medicines and vaccines that change patients' lives. We also want to make, so if we're doing that, we want to ensure the safe, effective, and appropriate use of our medicines. So how can we do that if you look at the statistic in the United States, which is kind of alarming, actually, 88% of US adults are considered to have low health literacy. I think that's a public health crisis, 88%. And yet we're here saying that we want to ensure the safe and effective, effective use of our medicines, appropriate use of our medicines. And then you look at the context of a healthcare system. Like I mentioned before, a physician only has five to 10 minutes with a patient, not their fault. So then to me, we want to make sure that we equip. I don't want to put the onus on patients. It's up to us. It's up to institutions. It's up to us to make sure that we equip healthcare professionals with tools they need to facilitate those discussions, to make sure that they're communicating to patients in those 10 minutes, that the time they have, whatever precious time they have, they're communicating in a manner that will lead to patient activation. And that's health literacy. How can we? At Pfizer, how can we make sure that the materials we're creating that are patient-facing follow health literacy principles? So I think there's something we can all do and take the onus away from the patient to make sure that we're, we, we're providing tools and we are creating materials that are health literate and follow health literacy principles. And so I always, I always chuckle. Um, We've come a long way, but back 10 years ago, when we started this conversation about health literacy internally, my colleagues would say, oh yeah, we do it. All our materials are written at the third grade level. Well, anybody who knows what health literacy is, is that it's different from literacy. You know, health literacy is different from literacy. There's overlap, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Health literacy is a modifiable risk factor, and we can modify it by making sure that our patient-facing content um, follows health literacy principles. And that means engaging with patients to co-create those materials. That's a big piece of health literate materials, because you've checked in with patients, you've tested the language with them, and they've given you feedback to make sure that it's health literate. And I can talk a little bit about some of the examples we have at Pfizer in terms of what we've done around health literacy. So I can actually, it goes back more than 10 years, and I have someone in the room who remembers this, Roz. We actually, in 2004, we funded and co-created the newest vital sign. It's, it's, a, it's a health literacy screener that is easy to use. A healthcare professional in their office can easily use this screener to see what level, what the level of health literacy their patient is. And I'm really proud to say that even in research, it's still one of the most referenced um, health literacy screeners. So that's one thing that I'm really proud of that we did back in 2004. And then a little more recently, we joined the National Academies of Science and Engineering and Medicine's Roundtable on Health Literacy. This gives us an opportunity to have a seat at the table, to have a be there when we, important decisions are being made about health literacy. What is the latest research when it comes to health literacy? And we're able to take those insights back to help inform the work we do to ensure that we're a health literate organization. We're also part of the Pharma Roundtable that's chaired by the National Academies as well. And that means that with our peers, we can again share best practices and bring those back into, um, into the organization. And then some of, one of the things I'm really also hashtag Pfizer proud of is that we've created a module that all Pfizer colleagues 
who are creating patient-facing materials have to take this training. And then again, for the first time in a Pfizer history, we published a Pfizer position on health literacy, and that's available on Pfizer.com. And then lastly, but, but last but not least, another Pfizer proud moment, I think I mentioned this earlier, I was also the co-founder and, co and I co-led the health literacy community of practice at Pfizer. So Pfizer has a long legacy in health literacy, but there's still so much work to do, especially when you think about the alarming statistic that 88% of US adults are considered to have low literacy. So it's not really a developed, developing world issue that some people usually think health literacy is. A lot of developed countries have adults um, who, have, who, are, who have low health literacy. And then when you take health literacy and you put it on top of all the misinformation that's coming at people from all over, it's, it's just it's an incredible yeah, and, and then the layer it's never done right. exactly the layer then let's not even talk about digital literacy and all these other things and so the, there's, there's a lot of work to do um, and it's really going to take the, not, not one company can do this alone it's really going to take all of us working together to really trying to make a difference because at the end of the day what we all really striving to do is make sure that we have improved patient outcomes for all and you talked about addressing the healthcare providers with the messaging that's clear and patient-centric, um, mm -hmm. but there's so much stress on healthcare providers right now, it's outside of the five minutes that you get, even if you get mm -hmm. the five minutes, mm -hmm. because of things like, um, you know, COVID kind of really reinforced that. But um, we, we need a community to build the materials, but we also need a community to share them. Exactly. As well, no, no, you're absolutely right with that. And, and, and also the thing what we do, because I think health literacy also empowers the patient. So I think an empowered patient will show up differently at a doctor's office. So that also helps. And then also when we think of tools to um, equip healthcare professionals, they have, to, they have to be built into their workflow already. It's not adding on to their work, but actually built into, when you're having that dialogue, when you're having that conversation already that you're gonna have, right. how can you make, make it more effective? Right. The little, simple little tweaks that you can do to make sure that you, you, you're activating a patient to, to take action on their health. Right, it's exciting. So we have a few minutes. I think um, we're supposed to open it to questions. Um, I have more questions, but I'm sure you all do um, for Emma. So if you wanna come up to the mic and ask a question. I told you guys yesterday I'd like to do the first question. I learned that 30 years at Pfizer, so. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I always like to stand up and talk to Ian or Jeff or whoever and ask them an awkward question. This, <laughs> this one isn't awkward. Okay. You just mentioned we should work together as all these companies to increase health literacy. How might we get past our own tendency to do our branding and be company-centric or Pfizer-centric or BMS-centric or whoever it is? How do we actually work together to make that happen and create something bigger than our companies. I love that. Thank, thank you so much for that question. So I think to me, how we are, why we, we really thinking that it's going to take a village to do this is why we joined the Pharma Roundtable on Health Literacy. So they're, they're, my peers around the table, Merck is around the table, um, I believe Eli Lilly, they're different companies that have actually joined the National Academies um, Roundtable on Health Literacy. And if there are any other companies here that don't know about it, 
please look into it. It's a really great forum to, for us to really meet together, um, hosted by the National Academies, to work here about the latest on health, health literacy principles and what we can take back to our, to our own organizations. Because at the end of the day, we are all, like I said, working towards that, that common goal of um, improving health outcomes for all. Thank you for that question. Can I, can I ask you, is, is that content specific? working together or is it um, by disease area or conceptual? It's, it's, it's really broad. It's not by disease area. It's really around concepts of how can you really improve health literacy. So we, we, we hear from health literacy experts when we go to this farmer roundtable. I think they really work closely with Northwestern has health literacy experts, doctors, doctors Wolf and Bailey who work in this space. And they're, always, they're also members of the National Academies. They're patient advocates that are members of the National Academies. So it's an opportunity for all of us to listen to this group of experts that are convened by the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine. Thank you. So it's a really great forum. Okay. Hi, I had a question. It's Haley from Couch Health. I really liked um, the training module you'd set up for internal colleagues doing patient-facing materials. I wondered what pushback, if any, did you have from time, you know, from employees to do that, and how did you overcome that? So I say, since it's in our purpose blueprint by our CEO, <laughs> There's no pushback. You have to take this training. So I think to me, I really love that patient-centricity is part of our purpose blueprint. So now um, every colleague is really empowered. And you know, like any organization we have, um, you know, training that's required. So now really, if you're creating patient-facing materials, you have to take health literacy training. And at the end of the day, when you think about it, all the different marketeers, all the different business want their materials to land well. Actually, what happened is the community of practice was becoming inundated with requests to do training. And yet a lot of these, the help being part of the community of practice was on top of all your other duties. So then that's really when we, we really quickly partnered with Northwestern to create a training module to train colleagues because we're being inundated with requests to train colleagues on health literacy principles. So I think when, when colleagues understand the importance of health literacy, when colleagues understand that this is actually going to improve the way patients understand the materials you're, you're improving, then it's really a no-brainer. And obviously, it, honestly, I have to say it helps that it's part of our purpose blueprint. Thank you for your question. Thank you. One more? Yeah, thank you for your uh, talk, Emma. Fascinating stuff. I also have another question about your uh, health literacy module that you're talking about. Um, with a lot of our lives going online in the cloud onto tech and a lot of our trials going that way, um, do you see some synergy to develop a combined module for patients in health literacy and tech literacy together? Oh my goodness, are you reading my mind? So that, <laughs> so that is actually in the works because we know that that's really going to be um, a game changer as well for patients. So that's in the works and that's something we're, we're thinking about. And part of the health literacy community of practice, actually one of the work streams is also trying to really address this digital literacy. Because if you think about it, really right now with our technology, technology is here to stay. And there's a really good place for technology, but I think even speakers spoke about this yesterday. As we really develop these materials, as we continue to do this work, let's make sure that we're not actually creating a wider digital divide. So I think all those digital literacies, and if anything, um, you know, registering to take a vaccine, 
Can you imagine how this, all the complications that happen? So really digital literacy is, is a big deal and, and, and a real issue that we need to address and solve. But I know we are over time as it goes, but really thank you so much, Cindy, for these questions. Thank you so much, Patience as Partners, for having me here. I'm so impressed, humbled, and thrilled by everything I've heard today. So thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Patients as Partners Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you.